I want to thank you for deciding to come to church tonight. Um, you, by your presence, have let the Lord know that you wanted to hear from Him, that you want to see something out of His Word that maybe you've never seen before, or maybe you just want to be refreshed by His Word. But in a church with a membership of 2,500 or so, about 200 decided that that's what they want. And uh, I would just caution you. I'm thankful that you're here tonight. But you know the easiest way to stop coming to church on Sunday night is miss one. You know why Daniel didn't have as much trouble uh, as all the other Babylonian captivity uh, captives on eating the king's meat? Because the Bible tells us very plainly, Daniel purposed in his heart to not eat the king's meat. You know the way that you ought to be able to right now make the decision to not miss church? Is you purpose in your heart now that no matter what comes down the way, whether it be uh, uh, you know, financial issues, family pressures, whatever it is, how about you just purpose in your heart now that you realize church will only help you, it will never hurt you, and then we can build this thing from about 200 to about 500 on Sunday night, which is where it ought to be. Genesis chapter 22 tonight, I want to speak to you on the subject of doing the impossible. It could also be labeled faith to do the impossible. Now this is somewhat of a strange passage to preach on this from, but I believe if you'll hang in there with me, you'll understand what I'm talking about. Genesis chapter 22, verse number 1, the Bible says, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here am I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, and saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and clave the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up, and he went unto the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes, and saw the place afar off, and Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the land will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them, together. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. 
And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I pray tonight, as I've already prayed, that you would please bless this sermon. Lord, I have nothing to offer these people, no uh, skill, no talent, no ability to prepare a sermon, Lord. It all falls flat at this moment when I stand behind this uh, wooden pulpit. Father, tonight I pray that your word would be so quick and powerful that it would speak to every heart in this room, every heart that's open and willing to hear your word, and I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would be breaking through hearts of stone tonight. Lord, I pray that you would just receive glory from the message and from the sermon. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God is not at all intimidated by what man thinks is impossible. It does not shake him in his boots when we think something is hard or something is difficult. It does not bother him. In fact, I look time and time again in the scriptures and I see that God rather almost takes pleasure in performing the impossible. And you know what? When God's put on the trial of what man thinks is impossible, he is undefeated. He always wins. He always succeeds. And most of the time in the Bible, God is the one doing the impossible. But there is an occasion where man has to do it. I remember the story of the three Hebrew children as they are forced to bow. They're asked to bow, rather told to bow, at the image of some ungodly pagan king. And that king tells them at the sound of all these certain instruments, you are to bow. And I can just imagine them out there on the plain as every single need, Jewish and, and Gentile alike, every single person bows and they stand tall. And they stood head and shoulders above everybody else that day. I can just see as all those people in that plain were bowed down, how badly three Hebrews would stick out as they stood with their face upright looking towards the statue. We all recall the story as they're brought in and, and, and it's almost like the king gives them a second chance. And he says, now boys, I'm going to give you chance number two here. At what time you hear all certain kinds of music, you will bow at the foot of this image. And my favorite part of the story is when those three Hebrew boys, probably not big, probably not necessarily talented, probably not the greatest Jews to ever live, they looked at one another and without any hesitation, what did they say? Oh, king, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. And I tend to do that a lot, right? I don't think before I speak, and so I, I usually do the whole, I'm not careful to answer thee, that was stupid. And then I end up being the idiot in the whole thing. But they said, oh, king, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter, but we will not bow to your statue. And I love that about the story. We know that the story proceeds, and the king is so angered that he decides to crank the furnace up what is it, seven times hotter than it had ever been uh, heated before. They cranked that old furnace up. And my favorite, I, I like this part. I have a bunch of favorite parts of the story. You know, that's, that's, my, that's what I do. I, lo I love that Bible of mine. And, and I love how the king cranks that furnace up. And those Hebrew boys are escorted by the very best that that, that army had to offer. The Babylonian army had to offer. And those boys are escorted by guys that I can just imagine look like me. 
Guys who were strong. I'm talking about guys that took pride when they didn't have to wear a shirt. They were tan. They had the, the muscles popping out of muscles. You know, those guys. And, and they escort them boys into that furnace. And I love the part of the story where it was so hot that as they cast the boys into the fire, the flames killed the very best and the very brightest of the army. I love that about the story. And then I love the king's response. Hey, guys, did we not cast three men into the fire? Oh, yeah, King, remember it was those three boys? Yeah, they stood. They, it, it was really, I, I don't know what they were thinking. I don't know how they thought they would get away with that. Yeah, we threw three. There was, there was that old Shadrach kid and that, uh, uh, Abedne, uh, Abednego and, and Meshach. It was all it was those three. And the king says, then somebody fill me in. I'm ad-libbing here. The King James doesn't say that. But he said, somebody, please enlighten me as to why I see four men up, loose, walking around the fire. And the fourth has the image of the Son of God. I love that part of the story. And God was the one who did the impossible that day. Those boys just took a stand and God planted their feet firmly on the platform of victory. Now, I love that story. I love the story of Moses leading the children of Israel out of what was the superpower of that day, Egypt. And I'm telling you what, as if the ten plagues was not a good enough part of the story where God sends one plague and another plague and another plague and Pharaoh's heart is hardened and it's almost like there's no end in sight. And it's like every time God does something, Pharaoh's grip gets harder. And I love how God delivers them so bad with that 10th plague that Pharaoh says, you just go and you take whatever you want. And the people were so happy to see them go, they would give them their jewelry. And the Bible says that the Jews literally spoiled Egypt. In other words, like they had won a battle and never lifted a sword. I love that. They get down there to the Red Sea and when they had... Departed out of the city, I guess Pharaoh had began to think about everything that had happened. And as he looked at the dead corpse of his son, he was angered. And he got so furious that he decided he was not going to keep his word, but he was going to chase the Hebrews down. Oh, he gathers his very best. The army had to offer all the chariots. I'm telling you, the superpower of the day begins to chase a bunch of slaves. They stand there on the banks of the Red Sea. And if you've ever done any type of study on the story or any type of geography, where they stood, they were surrounded by cliffs, water, and the only open passage was the one that they came through, and there Pharaoh's army was pursuing them. There was no way out. It was too late. They, they, they couldn't do anything about it. Now, love, as everybody looks at Moses and says, Oh, Moses, you brought us out here, but just because there were not enough graves in Egypt, it would have been better if we had just stayed getting whipped by the taskmasters. It would have been better if we had just stayed being told how to work and when to work and what to do. It would have been better if we had just stayed back in Egypt and been slaves. And, oh, Moses, above all the commotion and all the murmuring of this backslidden nation, Moses lifts his hands and he quiets the crowd with just a few words. And he says, I need everybody to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. 
And that day Moses planted that staff firmly in that water. That's how I picture it anyway. I don't know if the Bible necessarily says that, but that's how I picture it. Maybe it's because that's how the cartoon went, I think. But uh, I I picture it as Moses plants that staff, and and who was the one that did the parting that day? Oh, it wasn't Moses by any stretch of the imagination. It was God, Jehovah Jireh, God, the one who would provide, God, the deliverer, God, their salvation, God, their strength, God, their buckler, God, their defender. It was God that parted those waters. What an amazing miracle that day. As God won the impossible for the nation of Israel. But right here in our story, I find something very unique. I find when God forces man to make a decision which is seemingly impossible without the help of God. In other words, there was no staff that Abraham had to make this decision. There was no divine intervention that God could enable Abraham to have the faith to say, yes, Lord. But Abraham did something which was seemingly impossible by by being willing to take the life of his own son. Now you know who Isaac is. You know the significance that he holds. You know that here in our passage and several other places throughout the Bible, Isaac is a type of Christ. He was the promised son. He was the son who who would be sacrificed. He was uh, God's uh, miracle child, if you will. And Abraham was willing to take his life for God. Did you know, friend, that God asks many people to do what is seemingly impossible? Every time someone surrenders to preach the gospel, someone is surrendering to do the impossible. Say, what do you mean, Brother Andrew? This world is getting increasingly more wicked by the day. It's growing farther and farther away from God. And it is, there has never been a time in history where wickedness and sin and idolatry was so far opposed to the Word of God as it is now. What's, more, what's worse is the wickedness and sin and idolatry of our nation and, yea, even the world is becoming acceptable in most people's eyes as the Word of God has standed Uh, stood tried and true and never wavered. So every time a a young man like Garrett surrenders to preach the gospel in New Orleans, am I correct, Garrett? Every time a young man surrenders to preach the gospel, say in New Orleans, Garrett's fighting a battle which is seemingly impossible. I am fighting a battle which is seemingly impossible as the world not only uh, uh, grows farther away from Jesus Christ, but even hates Him and the very mention of His name. Every time someone surrenders to go to a mission field that they don't know the language, they don't know the customs, they don't know the practices, they don't even know the type of people they're going to be ministering to. Every time someone like Brother James decides to take the call of God in his life and say, Lord, wherever you have me go, Lord, whatever you do with my life, Lord, I'm not anything special. Lord, I I don't have any gifts, no talents that you have not provided me with. Lord, I I don't even know how I'm going to get there because I've not even had one church say they'll support me me, but God, I promise you, I will do what you've asked me to do. And they surrender to do the impossible. My friend, today I believe that God is asking you to do the impossible. 
I believe God is calling people and moving in people's lives like He has never moved before. Someone said, what a shame it is that God's not calling more people to to full-time ministry. To that, some would say, oh, God's still calling people to full-time ministry. People just aren't surrendering to full-time ministry. And I'm not even just saying that. I'm saying that God is calling you to do the impossible by living a holy and consecrated life. I'm talking about a life that is separated from the world. And and that is such a a, a buzzword in modern day Christianity. Oh, Brother Andrew, how can we reach the world if we're separated? To that I would say, how can you reach the world and not be separated? How can you look exactly like the world and think that the world wants something that you have? My friend, it is nearly impossible in this day and age for a teenager to graduate from high school with their purity and and go on to marry the love of their life and serve God, whether they're in full-time ministry or the other full-time ministry. It's nearly impossible. Today I want to show you four ways that you can do the impossible. First of all, I want you to notice, and this is what Abraham did. Abraham and we should always listen for the call on his life. He always listened for God's call. Look in verse number one. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham. And he said, Behold, here I am. Now that may seem very elementary as far as Christianity goes. If God calls, we should answer, right? If God says a uh, 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 Christian, if God says child, if God says son or daughter, if, if God calls our name and calls and tugs on the cords of our heart, would it not seem very fundamental for us to say, Lord, yeah, yeah, here I am, Lord. Then why aren't we? Why, when God moves us, why don't we respond in the direction that we ought to go? I I, I recall the story in 1 Samuel chapter 3 of Samuel uh, uh, responding to God's call on his life. The Bible says the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. And so they did not have the word of God. They, they, they did not have open vision, as we might think. They did not have uh, all the things that we have, like we have a more sure word of prophecy. So as they did not have those things, the Bible says the word of the Lord was very precious. And I hope in your life that the word of the Lord is very precious. I hope in your life that it's becoming more and more precious every single day. That's why uh, 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 the psalmist says, I have esteemed the words of uh, your mouth more necessary than my daily food. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth for you. Is the word of God and is the voice of God precious in your life? It ought to be. The story goes on as Samuel hears the word of the Lord. He has never heard God's voice. And the Bible specifically tells us at this point in time, Samuel did not know the Lord. And he had never heard the Lord's voice calling to him, even though he was serving there in the temple. May that be a lesson to you. Just because you're in church doesn't mean you know the the one who died for the church. 
And Samuel was spoken to by the Lord in three different times. I've got to pick out somebody that has a little age on them so I can accurately demonstrate this. Oh, oh hey, Brother Pickett. Um, and uh, oh, Eli is sleeping, Brother Pickett's Eli. And I'm Samuel. And, 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 and Eli is sleeping and, and Samuel is sleeping and, and he hears the voice of the Lord. And, and Samuel's never heard it before, so he doesn't know what's going on. And so he says, oh, here I am. And he runs into Eli and he says, yes, you called? And Eli says, I didn't call you. Do it in your grumpy voice. I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. Yeah, yeah, and there it was. Perfect. That's exactly what he says. He says, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. A second time, Eli kind of confusingly goes and lays back down in bed and he closes his eyes and the Lord says, uh, 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 Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel says, yes, uh, Eli, you called? You called and Eli once again, more grumpy, more upset. I didn't call you. That's the way I imagine it. Give me liberty to imagine my own. I didn't call you. Go back to bed. So, uh, well, Samuel kind of is so confused. And, and by this time, Eli is perceived in his heart, well, since I'm not talking to him and, and I'm the only one here with him, maybe it's the Lord. And so Eli says, next time you hear this, how about you just say, speak, Lord, for your servant hearing. So Samuel goes back to bed and here in just a few moments, he hears the same voice. Samuel! Samuel! And instead of running in there to Eli, he says, Speak, Lord, for your servant heareth. And he was open to doing what the Lord said. And if you do some study on that passage, the message that the Lord gave him that day was not one that was necessarily good. It was not one that was necessarily edifying or built Samuel up. In fact, he was very depressed to give the word that God had given to him to Eli. And so we go on, and the Bible says in verse 19, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. And notice this, And did let none of his words fall to the ground. In other words, after this first experience of the Lord speaking to Samuel, you know what? Samuel put a value on the word of God in his life. He began to cherish it. He began to want it so desperately. He began to want to do nothing more than hear God's voice in his own life again. You want to know the way you're going to accomplish the impossible? Is figure out what God wants you to do with your life. And I spoke to the teenagers this morning, as I often do. There is always something that God is calling you to do. God never wants his children in neutral. If you're in neutral, you're in reverse because it's an uphill battle the entire way. God wants you to always be pressing, always be pushing, and always be going forward for the cause of Christ. And the first way you can know how to do the impossible is by listening for God's call on your life. I love the invention of the cellular device. It is an amazing thing, especially now with what we have. We have the ability to watch movies on it. I tell you, I don't know how we would have made that trip to California if I had not been able to shove Doc McStuffins into my daughter's face and say, just shut your little yapper. 
Man, she watched probably, what do you think, 38 hours of 40 of Doc McStuffins. I mean, we, we are docked out. Time for your checkup. Time for your... I mean, we know it, man. I'm talking about well, we've been cured from everything from the measly umps to the uh, 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 sneezy offens or whatever. She has some of the strangest diagnoses. But, um, and so... I love the, the mobile device. It's pretty amazing. Uh, the fact that our, our teenagers who went to that conference were able to post something on a website and their parents and everybody else in the world, and we need to always remember that. <laughs> Thanks, teenagers. And we always need to remember that when you post something on social media, your pastor sees. Because you want to know a good way to ruin your pastor's day? It's to pin yourself somewhere you ought not be. And it always gets back to us, I promise. And I don't even have one of them space books. Isn't that what they are, Dad? I don't know what they are. That's space books. I don't even have one of them. But anyway, it's an amazing thing that our teenagers can post something, a picture of them at the Grand Canyon, and immediately, hundreds and hundreds of miles away, their parents be able to say, Oh, what a cute picture. Isn't that amazing? I love the invention of the cellular cellular device. I also love the fact that you can speak into something that is not attached to anything, and immediately your voice travels so fast. I don't even get how that happens. It doesn't make sense in my mind logistically. That's an amazing... Thank you all for appreciating that word. It's just amazing to me that I can speak and within a fraction of a second you can hear my voice and you can be in Ontario, Canada. It's an amazing thing. You know what kind of makes it less amazing? When people don't carry their cellular device. Have you ever been calling somebody? You say, I really need to speak to them and you dial up their number, ring, ring, ring. This person's mailbox is full. Oh, so I can't even leave them a message. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And I always look at the phone. I'm like, it is a mobile device. Where are you that you could not carry your mobile device? You better be scuba diving. It's so frustrating when you can't get in touch with a person that you want to get in touch with. I wonder if God feels that way sometimes. You see, what God had to do to restore fellowship with us is quite amazing theology. In the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, you understand that God can no longer freely communicate with them. Sin put up a partition, a veil, a curtain, a a wall, a divide, if you will, so great that God could no longer speak to men like he had previously spoken to them because of our sin. And if it was not for the Lord Jesus Christ dying on the cross and the curtain or the veil being torn in two and God giving us the Holy Spirit of God to lead us and guide us and direct us, if it had not been for all of that amazing theology, we couldn't speak to Him in the first place. And yet God went through all of that to speak to you. Now what do you do when He talks to you? When you're walking down the road and you start heading to a place you ought not go, And the Holy Spirit of God, although His voice may be getting quieter in some of our lives for how many times we've grieved Him, but when you're walking down the road and you're heading somewhere that that, uh, uh, you ought not go, and the Holy Spirit of God says, hey, don't go there. Hey, you know better than that. 
when you sit there and you do exactly what he's told you not to do, you're not listening to God's call. You're living in the realm of possible. And you'll never see God do something extraordinary with your life until you step out of the realm of the possible and you step into the realm of the impossible, which is pursuing God in faith no matter what the call is. I just believe Abraham was a man who was very aware of the call of God on his life. I want you to notice this secondly. We should always, always, not only listen for the call, but always obey God's commands. You see, it's an entirely different thing hearing God's Word and doing God's Word. They're not even in the same ballpark. You see, every one of us hears the Word of God on a regular basis. Three times a week for most of you sitting in this room and hopefully every single day of all your, of every, every single day of your life. But we all hear God's word, but the problem is sometimes we struggle to do it. I'm reminded of Balaam. Oh, y'all remember Balaam? He's very famous for talking to animals. He's like the Dr. Doolittle of the Bible. What's funny is his donkey talks to him and he talks right back. You ever notice that? His donkey says, what are you doing? He says, I'm mad at you. Have you noticed anything that's a little weird here, Balaam? Basically, the story goes like this. I was going to read it, but for sake of time, we won't because it's about 33 verses. But Balak is a pagan king, and Israel is encamped against them. In other words, in just a few days, they're going to go into battle. And King Balak is scared because he's heard of what the children of Israel are just conquering everybody they're fighting. And so Balak calls to Balaam and says, we need you to come curse this nation who is about to... Take over our land. And Balaam says, he goes to the Lord, he says, Guys, I need you to hang here for just a little bit. They had gifts of, the Bible calls them gifts of divinity. In other words, they were going to give him gifts for doing this thing. And so uh, Balaam, being a wise man, says, Okay, I will not give you an answer right now, but stay the night with me. I will seek God's will, and I'll tell you an answer in the morning. And that's a very smart thing to do. Balaam goes to bed, and he receives from the Lord the, the word. And basically God says, Balaam, you have no business going to curse Israel. They are my children. They are blessed, and it's none of your business to curse them. So Balaam comes back the next day and says, I can't do what you're asking me to. I can't do any more or any less than what God wants me to do. And so they go back and return to King Balak. And he says, he's not going to come. He's not coming with us. And so Balak sends people of higher esteem. In other words, people with a little more authority, probably guys who could talk a little bit better, maybe better persuaders or salesmen. And they bring, uh, uh, well, they don't bring the gifts this time. They just come to Balaam and they say, if you only knew what our king could do for you. He could make you the wealthiest. He could give you anything you want if you would just come and speak. And so Balaam says, I will once again seek God's call God's will on my life. And, and once you get God's will, how about you not always question it? How about you just set on a path to get it accomplished? And Balaam goes to the Lord and says, now, Lord, what do you want me to do? And God says, okay, I'll tell you what, Balaam, 
If in the morning when you wake up, they come to you and seek you out and ask you to go again, you go with them. So the Bible, the very next verse says, So Balaam rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass. Wait, did y'all notice something that was missing? Did you notice it was almost like he was over-anxious to go? Because they never sought him out. He was packed up and ready to go. Kind of like when people get mad at church. There's no seeking of God's will on that. They just pack their bags and head out, almost like they were already packed to begin with. What a shame that is. But uh, Balaam gets ready, he's going, and, and I, I want you to notice this very particularly. If you weren't paying attention, pay attention now. As they're going, when God could clearly speak to Balaam before, now an angel is standing in his path and he can't even see it. Now, I wonder why that is. Because when he disobeyed, he no longer had that clear communication with God. When he chose to pursue his own interests and his own uh, uh, goals and aspirations, God says, I can't even get my message through to you now. And literally, the reason the donkey starts speaking is because they come to a way, very similar to this middle aisle, and they're, they're, they're riding through... And Balaam's beating the donkey so that the donkey will go, and it can't go to the right, and it can't go to the left. And an angel stands right in the middle saying, Balaam, Balaam, stop, what are you doing? And Balaam says, what are you doing, you donkey? And the donkey lays down. He starts to beat the donkey, and the donkey goes, hey, what are you beating me for? Have I not served you my whole life? Have I ever done anything mean or anything wrong to you? Have I not always obeyed you? Basically, I'm ad-libbing a little bit to the story, but he says, Can you not see the angel? He couldn't. You know why? Because knowing God's will and doing it are two different things. I'm reminded of Jonah, the very first chapter, the very first verse. It says, And the word of the Lord came to Jonah and told him to go to Nineveh. The very second verse says, so Jonah arose and went to Tarshish. Sounds like some of our lives. There was no confusion as to where Jonah was to go. There was just simply confusion as to whether Jonah would do what God had commanded. Knowing God's will and doing God's will have always been different. And for some of us in this room, you probably said in a youth camp a long time ago, and you felt God's call on your life to do something spectacular for Him, whether it be full-time ministry or not. And you felt God moving in a way that you never felt Him move, or whether it was at a revival at this church, or whether it was at a Sunday morning or a Sunday night at this church, you felt God tugging on your heart and saying, I have greater plans for you. I have something marvelous for you. If you would just do it, I know you would see it. But you see, my friend, knowing God's will and doing God's will are two completely different things. At the end of this service, at the end of this sermon, I'm going to give a moment of invitation. And each of you are going to make a decision whether you're going to know God's will or do God's will. If you've been coming to this church for 10 years, and in the last two years you've not walked this aisle, and really the aisle and the altar are irrelevant, if you've not bowed a knee in your seat and said, God, I need to get something right, 
God, I need to fix what's going on in my life. When I see some of the most holy men in our congregation walk the aisles, you know what I think? I think, I'm glad they're holy men. Holy men walk aisles. Uh, 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 Backslidden men stay seated in the back. And it's a shame that we as Christians hear God's call. And I, I don't know if we have the greatest preaching church. I know we have a senior pastor that can shuck the corn. And better than shucking the corn, he preaches the word of God. I, I don't know what you think of me, but I know I try my very best to study God's word and deliver it exactly like God wants me to deliver it. And as, at the end of this uh, sermon, there's going to be a time when people are going to have to decide whether they're going to move closer to God or step farther away from Him because knowing God's will and doing God's will have always been different. The Bible says in James chapter 22, it's an encouragement for every New Testament believer, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. Not only tonight should we always listen for God's call and always obey God's commands if we're going to do the impossible. Number three, I want you to notice we must always rely on God's capability. We must always rely on God's capability. Verse number eight in chapter 22 of Genesis, the Bible says, And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Isaac is walking up that mountain with his father, and he's seen sacrifice before. And I hope that as men of God and as leaders of our home, your children have seen you worship God before. I hope that they've not only seen you worship God inside the halls of this building. Wouldn't it be an amazing thing if your child heard you listening to a Christian song one day, and that Christian song talked about a Savior who was willing to die for you, and and maybe dad had a little tear run down his eye? Wouldn't it be an amazing thing if if your children saw you maybe a little bit broken at the fact that there was a, a, a God of the universe who came down in the form of man and made himself a servant and took on uh, uh, the cross and died there for you? Wouldn't it be amazing if your children saw you worship God outside the confinements of this building? And they're on their way to that mountain there, and, and Isaac looks at Dad, and he says, Dad, I've been to sacrifice before, and, and I see the wood, and, and yeah, we even have the fire, but Dad, I think you forgot something. Where's the lamb? And Abraham looks at Isaac, and I can't imagine the emotions that must have been going through Abraham's mind. I mean, he, what was he thinking? Do I lie to my own son? Do I, what do I do here? I'm about to lay him on the altar, and he's asking where the lamb is. And Abraham looks at him and says, God will provide. When God asks you to step out on the realm of impossibility, when he asks you to do something that is not popular and is definitely not feasible for you in your own power, My friend, that's exactly where his power begins. It is at the valley where God shows himself the greatest. It is in the night when you most clearly see the light. And when God calls you to do something, you have to understand, he is not calling you with a weak hand. 
He is not calling you with a hand that is shortened to save. He's not calling you with an ear that is deaf so that it cannot hear. He is calling you and saying, not only do I ask you to do the impossible, but I give you my own power to do the impossible. Oh, there's some great verses in the Bible about doing the impossible. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 41, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. God calls you to do the impossible. He's never asked men to do the impossible by themselves. God says all you have to do is exhibit just a touch of faith and you can move mountains. All you have to do is step out of the boat and you can walk on water. But it takes men having just a little bit of faith and God says, I'll do the rest. We must trust on God's capability. How did Abraham do this? I mean, how was he willing to sacrifice his own son? Did he believe that God was going to give him another? See, the significant thing about Isaac was there could not be another Isaac. And so the Bible tells us later on in Hebrews chapter 11, and you can do the study if you want, chapter, uh, verse 17 through 19, that in Abraham's heart, not only did he believe, trust God and have the faith to walk up this mountain with his son, but he believed in his heart that God would raise him from the dead. What's so amazing about this is no one in history had been raised from the dead yet. You see, the first time I can see anybody raised from the dead in the Bible is Elijah. And then Elisha. But nobody has been raised from the dead up until this point. And as Abraham walks up this mountain, he had so much faith in the power of his God, he said, God, I will do what you ask as long as your power will help me do it. And I believe with my whole heart, and I think you believe it as well, As Abraham plunged this knife into the heart of his own son, he believed with every fiber of his being that the moment he removed it, God would say, Isaac, stand up. And Isaac would stand up from that altar. He believed in the power of God. Let me ask you, Christian, why is it when God asks us to do the impossible, we're not so readily willing to do it? Why? I mean, if he's capable to do the impossible, as seen in the Bible time and time and time again, if he's capable, why aren't we willing? My thought is, we don't believe him. We think for some reason we're disqualified from the promises of God. I'll give you an example. Somebody listening to a sermon one night and the Word of God speaking their heart and they feel called to full-time ministry and they sit back there and they say, God, you could never use me. I'm a wicked man. I I don't really know that much Bible. Lord, I, I, I do things wrong all the time. I mess up like more than anybody else I know and as much as I try, I seem to fail more often than I succeed. We sit back there and we reason within ourselves how impossible it could be. When I have yet to discover a single man in the Word of God that was perfect besides the Lord Jesus. Even John the Baptist, who was prepared to to, uh, prepare the way of the Lord, who was born specifically for that reason. And if you read a little bit about John the Baptist, he was a weird dude, right? 
I mean, we take pride in him being John the Baptist, but that just goes to show you, Baptists are a weird breed. But John the Baptist was just as sinful as David was when in Psalm chapter 51, David said, Behold, in iniquity was I shapen. I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. See, John the Baptist was a sinner from his mother's womb. And then the Bible goes on to tell us, For all have sinned. And you know what I've noticed about John the Baptist? He's one of us. Uh, he, He was not virgin born. He was a sinner just like every single man who accomplished great things for God and the entire Word of God. You know what? God may be speaking to you tonight saying, I need you to go to some foreign field. Did you know there's people in the Dominican Republic that have never even heard the word Jesus before? You speak to them about Jesus and they think it's their friend down the road. They say, oh, Jesus, he's a good guy. They've never even heard the story that we love to... I love to tell the story. And we hear, I heard an old, old story. You know what? More than half the world has never heard it. And so God sits in here and he begs and pleads and moves in our heart and he says, I need you to go. It's not important to work on the gas well. It's not important to fix air conditioners. It's not important to fix people's plumbing. It's important that the message of Jesus Christ get out to this lost and dying world because it doesn't matter if you live in Africa or it doesn't matter if you live in Joshua, Texas. Every man is on their way to an eternity apart from God in a a terrible, painful hell. And we sit here avoiding God's call because we don't trust in His capability. The fact of the matter is, before I got up to preach tonight, I literally said, God, I'm a wicked man. There's nothing in me that people should admire. God, I am, there's nothing that is good about me. And Lord, I beg of you to use me in some way. I have no idea what you're going to do, Lord. It just seems as if I've prepared this message and it all seems flat in my mind. So, God, please make your word alive. God, please do something in heart because, Lord, I know I can't do it within myself. And if God is talking to you today, I promise you, it's not because of you that God can do something great. Moses slew an Egyptian man in anger. It's because of God. God can do something great. The Bible says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. The Bible says, for with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Stepping out of the realm of the possible into the realm of impossibility is when we just say, God, I am not good enough to do anything for you, but if you will just simply use me, God, I will be used of you. I'm afraid that we just don't trust in God's capability like we should. Once you notice, finally, we're almost done. We should always, always be thankful for God's consistency. You see, God calls and he speaks to our heart and asks us to do something. And then we have a decision to make as to whether or not we're going to obey that command. He then goes on and and he really is asking you to trust in his own power and his own capability. But there comes a time when he's done a miracle in your life. You must look back on it and say, God, 
I don't know how, but you did something great. You know when Moses realized it was an amazing thing that the Red Sea had been parted? When he stood on the other bank and Pharaoh's army was caught up in the waves. And looking back on it, he sees the mighty power of his day floating away, and they never fired an arrow, never lifted a bow, not one thing. They did nothing. They simply walked across on dry ground, and God did a miracle that day. Moses looks at the children of Israel, and he says, we need to remember this. We need to remember the victory that God did here today. So they gather some stones. And they lay on the banks of that river 12 stones representing each tribe of the nation of Israel. 12 stones for 12 tribes delivered. Not one man left behind. Every single person made it across safely and they look at these stones. And, and, and the Bible goes on to say, when someone should ask you, when your children should ask you, what mean ye by these stones? Well, you go on and tell them this story. You tell them how that one day... God did something amazing because you're not always going to see soldiers in the water. You're not always going to see the, 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 the greatest army in the world at the time. You're not always going to see them uh, uh, dying in this water. They're going to be long gone, and it's just going to look like a normal ocean one day. And your kids are going to come to it, and they're going to say, what do these stones mean? And the Bible says you tell them exactly what happened this day so that they can remember that our God delivered us. Look in this passage here. Abraham does something very similar. Verse 13, the Bible says, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And I'll be honest with you, we were Isaac. I understand that Isaac is a type of Christ, but when Isaac is removed off the altar and the ram is put on the altar, we are Isaac and the ram is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we deserve the knife. We deserve the cross. But one day Jesus said, I'll go. I'll suffer the pain that they can't suffer. I'll do what they couldn't do. I will take upon myself the sins of the world. And so where Isaac is removed, removed from that altar and that ram over there caught in the thicket, I can just imagine the beauty of that ram, the purity of that ram. I can just imagine how that ram would sit over there and I just believe that that ram wasn't even fighting. You can believe what you want, but if that ram is a true picture of Christ, he's caught in the thorns, but when they approach him, he doesn't even tug. As they approach him to take his life, he sits there motionless. The Bible says Jesus, uh, as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. If that ram is a true picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, he sat there willing to die for Isaac. I'll tell you what... <laughs> If you can't get a little happy about Jesus Christ willingly laying himself on the altar of the cross, you literally are not saved. That's pretty harsh, Brother Andrew. The only thing we have to rejoice about is the cross. The only thing we have to rejoice about is the crucified Savior who rose again. All the promises of God fall flat if Jesus does not die for us. Abraham looks at that ram over there caught in the thicket, verse 13. A ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. 
as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Now Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah comes from the word to be or to exist. In other words, it is the existent one when in reference to God. But the word Jireh goes on to mean his provision. So it basically means the existent one who provides. Or as we like to hear it, or we would better fit in our minds, the Lord will provide. That's what that means. Abraham set up an altar there that day, and he very well thought that he was going to have to sacrifice his own son on that altar. And that angel stopped Abraham right in his tracks, and he looks over to see that ram caught in the bushes. He brings that ram over. He sacrifices that ram, burns that altar, and he looks at God and he says, Thank you. Thank you, God. Could you imagine thanking God for testing your faith like he did Abraham? It is a joyous thing to have your faith tested, but it is more glorious to look back on see God's provision. Uh, one of my favorite sayings in all the Bible is this, and it came to pass. Do you know there's never a time in the Bible when something is promised and it doesn't come to pass? Did you know that God has never promised one thing that he has not delivered on? Anything God said, he has always accomplished. You see, Jesus came to this earth, and he died on the cross, and the Bible literally calls him in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author, in other words, the beginning, the one who began our faith, and the finisher of our faith. So the Bible says, looking unto Jesus, the author, uh, the author and the be- uh, finisher of our faith. You see, Jesus came and started our faith, but he also finished our faith. The Bible goes on to say that the Lord, uh, 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 Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, being confident in this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you, he that hath performed a good work in you, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, God has already started something in your life. The, the, The salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ it's commenced in your life, and it's began, and every day you live out your salvation. That's why the Bible says, working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And Jesus Christ has done something in your heart, and he's done something in your life. The Bible goes on to say, being confident in this very thing, that he not only began salvation in your life, but he will be with you until the day that Jesus Christ returns. Jesus never starts anything he won't finish. So why would your impossibility be any different? If Jesus Christ asks you to do the impossible, He will provide everything you need. He will do everything He can, and I assure you that's more than enough. He will make it come to pass in your life. You know what you ought to do when you stand and look back on all the trials and tribulations that you faced? You ought to build an altar. And you ought to say, God, I remember when I looked through that tunnel and it seemed like there was no end in sight. 
It seemed like the only light at the tunnel was a train headed my direction. I had no answer. I remember a day in this church within two years ago where I literally felt there was no answer. In our church, I said, I don't know what we're going to do. I have no idea how we're going to proceed. This just seems like the end of the world. I remember it as vivid as yesterday. I look back on it and I say, God, I'm sorry I ever doubted you. God, I'm so sorry that, that my weak fleshly faith did not think that you were more than able to deliver us. Now look back on that. You know what I ought to do? Is I ought to build an altar. And I ought to look at that the next time I stand at the beginning of a very dark tunnel and I'll look back on that, on that altar and I'll say, God, you did it for me then and I know without a shadow of a doubt you'll do it for me again. That's just the nature of our God. You see, our God doesn't start a sentence that he doesn't punctuate. Our God's never written a novel that he's quit right in the middle. I love the fact that our God finishes everything that he starts. One stormy night, an elderly couple came into a small town. They were trying to find a hotel room, but the, ho- the, the town did not have very many rooms to offer. And all those that were available... Uh, had been taking up due to the storms that night. An elderly couple comes into one hotel, and they've already searched several hotels, and and they had no luck finding a room, so they look across the the table there at uh, the the, the person working the hotel, and they said, do you have a room available? And he said, we don't have any more rooms. And there's no more rooms in the entire town. Depressed, the elderly couple began to search within themselves what they were going to do. As they began to walk out the back door, the the hotel clerk looked at him inside himself and he looked up and saw them leaving. He says, but I can't turn a good couple like you away. And he asked them if they would be willing to stay in his own room. The couple deliberated within themselves and they said, we don't want to do that. You have to say something. He says, no, I insist. So the couple stayed in his, his room that night. They woke up the next morning, and as that man was checking out, he looked at him and he said, you ought to be working in the finest hotel in New York City. The man kind of giggled, kind of laughed a little bit at his comment. And he said, I'm going to build you one. The man, in disbelief, <laughs> didn't think anything about it. He checked them out. The elderly couple left. Two years later, the man received a note with a ticket to New York City saying, come immediately. He didn't really know much about what was going on. He arrived in New York City and was greeted by the same elderly man that he had checked into the hotel that night and allowed to stay in his room. He stood at the foot of a building there, an amazing hotel, and the man said, this is the Waldorf Astoria, and I would like you to manage it. That man's name was George C. Bolt, the very first manager that the Waldorf Astoria in New York City had. See, like Mr., uh, I believe his name is Astor. I don't know why they named it Astoria. I thought, hey, your your name's, just call it the Waldorf Astor, but I guess that didn't sound classy enough. 
But just like he delivered on his promise, you understand that God always delivers on his. And while the feat may seem impossible at the time, God is seeing the end result. And he says, once you get there, you'll laugh at your lack of faith. When David was standing on the back of the giant with his head in his hands, everybody else looking down there, and I promise you, the person who regretted not fighting the most was Eliab. You say, who's that? That's David's brother. That's the brother that David would have looked up to. That's his oldest brother. And I can imagine Eliab's heart as he looks down there, he says, my little brother done whooped up on the champion of Philistia. Why didn't I do that? You know what some of you are going to say at the end of your life? You're going to look at all the things you've done for Christ. You're going to look at somebody who is far less talented, far less skilled, far less uh, uh, clean and, and has less charisma than you, and you're going to look at your life and you're going to say, this is what I did, and that is what he did. And God's going to say to you, if only you had seen what I had for you. If only you had had the faith to step off that canyon rim and go down there and look that giant square in the face. And he said, I defy you by the armies of the living God. If only you just have a little faith in a God who loves delivering people from the impossible, you'd see the impossible accomplished in your life. Dad, Mom, your children looking at you like you don't know what, like, like you have never done anything in your life. Like they don't respect you. They, they look at you and say, I can't even believe you're talking to me that way right now. Like you know anything. Oh, yeah, I kind of went to high school once. <laughs> I, I, I kind of went to college. I, I know what I'm talking about. And the kids look at you. <laughs> what, do you see? what do you know? And you don't have a good relationship with your children? It is nearly impossible for parents to have a good relationship with their children when all the media that they intake, seven and a half hours of media a day. With all the media they intake, you watch the Disney Channel for about 30 minutes, I promise you, you're going to see a child defy their parents. Hey, we watch the Disney Channel, it's just Doc McStuffins. And Doc loves her mom. Her mom, Doc's mom's got some attitude. If Doc backtalked her, she'd just smack her on the face. I know I watch that show a bunch, so I'm pretty sure. Caitlin's not even with me when I watch it half the time, so. It is nearly impossible in this day and age, with all the pressures that your teenagers face and all the pressures your children face, to have a good relationship with you. Notice I said nearly impossible. Because with God, all things are possible. You want a good relationship with your children? You start living like God wants you to live? You stop playing this whole, oh, I go to church and live a completely different life throughout the week? You sell yourself totally out to God and your teenagers start seeing you walk the walk that that you know you ought to be walking? Oh, they'll start respecting you. God, God specializes in the impossible. And while standing on this side of it, it seems like, whoa, that mountain is far too big to climb. There's no way I could do that. You're right. You can't. But the Bible tells us that the Lord will never leave us nor forsake us. 
And even when we're walking through the very valley of the shadow of death, God is right there with us to comfort us and to lead us. I challenge you to do this, Christian. God ought to be speaking to your heart tonight. And He is asking each and every one of us in this room to step out in faith and do the impossible. He's not asking you to do it alone. He's asking you to take the challenge and do it with Him. Oh, He's not even asking you to pilot the plane. He's just saying, enjoy the ride. God is asking you to do the impossible, and now the decision lies in your heart. Will you listen to His call? Will you trust in His capability? Will you, will you be able to look back and say, God, thank you? Abraham had no business having the faith he had. All he said was, one day, God, I'll do whatever you want me to. And God's asking you to do the same.